Morning. All right, so our passage this morning is out of Acts 13. It starts in verse 13. So you'll find that in your pew Bibles on page 921. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up. And motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about four hundred and fifty years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that God has promised to the fathers, that he has fulfilled to us, that he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if if one tells it to you. 
As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lauren. So you get two sermons again today. That was sermon number one. One of them will be longer, but only one of them will be remembered, reread, and re-preached throughout history. I'll let you be the judge of that. So here we are. Paul and Barnabas have been sent out from one Antioch, and now they find themselves in another. It's a different one. Don't get confused. Antioch in Syria, now Antioch in Pisidia. Antioch, the Antioch church in Syria was the first greenhouse church, and it's been a model for so many churches for the last 2,000 years. The first truly diverse church, made up of people from all places, all backgrounds, all walks of life, worshiping one Lord, one Savior, under one baptism, with one faith, one God and Father of all, who was over all, through all, and in all. And this church had a passion for Christ's mission to the ends of the earth. They took it seriously. And so they sent out their very best, Paul and Barnabas, to go and proclaim Jesus, to proclaim the gospel as the Spirit led them throughout the region. They began in Cyprus. They went through the whole island, traveling and preaching the gospel. It seems that they didn't have as much effective ministry on Cyprus as they did in other places And yet they reached a man, Sergius Paulus, who was one of the most influential men on the whole island, the governor of Cyprus, and he came to faith in the Lord. So a powerful ministry has begun. Now they're journeying here from Cyprus to what is southern southern Turkey today and traveling throughout this region. In their day, it was the region of Galatia. Later, Paul would write back to the churches that began through their ministry in this region uh, and we have that letter preserved for us in the scriptures. And it'll be Paul's primary work would be to plant churches, to minister for a time or a season, and then to move on and continue to preach the gospel as the church would grow up. Then often got to revisit these places, establish them, uh, put elders into place in some of them, and then over the years ahead would write back letters of encouragement. We have many of those letters preserved. And some of the very same themes that, Paul expands on and clarifies in his letter to the Galatians, we hear him preaching 
from day one with this early church. I like how Luke says simply, they went on from Perga to Antioch in Pisidia. Did you catch that right at the, I think that's verse 14. They went on from Perga to Antioch. That was a hundred mile journey to the north going from sea level to 3,600 feet over a mountain pass, the mountains of Taurus. And it was not just a hike, but the route was barren, it was often flooded, and it was notorious for bandits. That was the journey they simply went on from. And that makes me wonder if that's why John Mark left them before the journey. I'm just saying. Paul wasn't a big fan of that decision. He believed John Mark had deserted them. We'll see that little conflict flare up in a couple chapters, and we'll speak of it then. A commentary I read this week titles this section of Acts, The Holy Spirit, a Bible, a passport, and a first aid kit. And I like the title, but to narrow it down to the focus, the essence of Paul's sermon that we hear preached, I've titled it, By Grace Alone, Through Faith Alone, in Christ Alone as the reformers consistently and powerfully proclaimed, but they did so because primarily of the preaching of Paul. Let me summarize. You probably picked it up as Lauren was reading. Verse 38 and 39 are kind of the summary, climax statement of Paul's sermon. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Depending on what translation you have, that word freed would, would could be written justified. A very powerful gospel term that shows up repeatedly in Paul's teachings and writings and right here from the beginning. Everyone who believes is justified. Their account is reconciled to God. They are seen as righteous because of what Christ has done. This is the essence of all Paul's preaching. Imagine that. It's all about Jesus. This is the first sermon we have in Acts of Paul's, and it's very reminiscent to Peter's sermons that we heard preached at the beginning of Acts, chapter 3, chapter 4, to Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. And so we ask, where did they learn to preach like this, quoting from various places in Scripture. For them, it was simply Scripture. For us, we would have to say, clarify, they were quoting from the Old Testament. So they're quoting from the Old Testament various places and pointing to Jesus, showing how all is fulfilled by Jesus. These men didn't have an MDiv, but they did learn from the divine master himself. Jesus taught in John 5, verse 39 and following, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus was making the astonishing claim that everything in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament as we know it today, points to and bears witness about Him. I don't think there's anything more important to understanding the Bible 
than what Jesus was communicating here. That everything written is about him. He is the fulfillment and the climax of the whole story. Moses, who lived 1,400 years prior to Jesus being born, wrote of him. It wasn't a popular teaching to Jewish ears. In fact, they tried to put him to death and arrest him from that moment on as they heard his claims they heard him as blasphemy. Who could claim such a thing? What man could say that all of Scripture, our whole history, is about him? And you can understand how incensed they were when you understand the, the depth and the power of their religion and their tradition. But what was Jesus referring to? When he said, Moses spoke of me, if you did a word search on one of your devices, and tried to find the name Jesus in Moses' writings, the first five books of the Bible, he's not going to come up. So how do you find him? How did Moses write of him? Perhaps a messianic promise, like Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. Moses writes, I will raise up, speaking on behalf of the Lord, I will raise up for them a prophet like you among their brothers And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Moses was considered a prophet. There's other prophetic words that he wrote for God's people. Perhaps Jesus though, when he said, Moses wrote of me, perhaps he was referring to the many pictures. We might call them types of people and symbols and events and ceremonies that show up in the story of God's love and pursuit with his people that represent and are fulfilled by Jesus. People like Adam specifically. When Paul would later teach Jesus as the second Adam, the first Adam through whom all have life, Jesus, the second Adam, has come to not just give earthly but eternal life for all who believe in him. Perhaps Isaac often pictured the picture of Jesus, Isaac, faithful trusting his father, carrying his own wood for his sacrifice up the mountain, just as Jesus would. Generally, Jesus, as we read through the story, is the final and the greatest high priest, the mediator between God and man. He's the truest prophet, the one who speaks perfectly on God's behalf. He's the greatest deliverer, greater than Moses, who sets his people free not from an earthly tyrant or dictator, but from our greatest enemies, sin, evil, and death. We see Jesus in the symbols like the ark that saved a family through the storm. We see Jesus in the Passover lamb that marked God's people and protected them from God's wrath. We see Jesus in the manna that fell in the wilderness. And Jesus is truly the bread of life. We see him, as Paul did, the rock that was struck in the wilderness and flowed forth living water. We see him as the tabernacle, as John wrote about, the true dwelling place of God with man. We see him as the bronze serpent that John wrote about and right before maybe the most famous verse in all of Scripture, you know John 3.16 perhaps. In John 3.14 and 15, John writes of Jesus as the bronze serpent, like the serpent who was raised up in the wilderness that all who looked upon him would find healing and find life. 
and on and on we could go. Just a sliver, and certainly I've taught on these things before, and it's essential that we see that all that has been written foreshadows and points to Jesus, the fulfillment and it's not only the writings of Moses, that's just the first five books. Jesus would later teach to the disciples following his resurrection, Luke 24 through 44, some pretty powerful words and pretty awesome Bible study that he took them on on the road. He said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. So it makes sense that Peter and Stephen and now Paul all preach this way. They preach the gospel, the good news, which is much more than simply Jesus saves sinners. That's a part of the gospel. It's a great way to summarize it. But the full gospel is the whole storyline of all that God has done to love and pursue his people, to draw them back, to rescue them, to deliver them, to care for them, to provide for them, to quote Sally Lloyd-Jones, the one storyline of Scripture is God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And that is fulfilled and embodied and finished in and through Jesus Christ alone. He is the climax of the story, all of Scripture, just as he is the climax of this sermon by Paul's. Quick recap of the sermon without being able or rightly to go through it point by point. That would be a good study. But to capture the essence of his sermon, he begins by building a bridge with the audience. Did you hear that? Verse 16 and 17. You who fear God, God chose you and made you great. Now some people, I guess, like to butter their bread before toasting it. So he builds this bridge with his audience and then he highlights God's love and pursuit, his compassion and his care, his presence with his people throughout history. Here are just some of the phrases he used. God led them, was patient with them, strengthened them, gave them victory, gave them the promised land as an inheritance, gave them judges and prophets and kings. See, Paul captures God's work, his love, pursuit, provision, and presence throughout history. So he still is building a bridge with his hearers. Remember, he's in the synagogue. That was their habit to go to the Jews first. He felt commissioned by the Lord to do that. As the Jews consistently rejected the message, not everyone, but many, he would turn to the Gentiles. And that becomes his habit throughout the cities we'll see in the chapters ahead on his journeys. But he's building a bridge. Brothers, it's the same, we, we, we worship the same God 
And this God has not changed. Now for the Jews, these were the heroes of their story. Their heroes were their patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Their kings, Saul, David, Solomon. Their prophets, Moses, Samuel, Elijah. These were the heroes of the story. Revered, honored, respected. But Paul only gives them a cameo in his sermon. He mentions them, but ultimately mentions God's work through them for a people. For the work that God was doing to rescue, redeem, and draw back his people to himself. Paul powerfully proclaims that there is one hero of the story. Verse 30, verse 23, then 32, Paul says, Of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. He's the Jewish Messiah. And then in verse 32, We bring you the good news, the gospel, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So he's been building a bridge, highlighting God's faithful love and pursuit. And now he builds his case by quoting from the Old Testament scriptures Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, Psalm 16, and showing how every part of the scriptures point to and are fulfilled in Jesus. Later, Paul would write back to the Corinthian church, which is yet to be planted in the timeline that we're journeying through. But in 2 Corinthians, at least the second letter that we have preserved from Paul to the church in Corinth, he wrote this, or 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All the promises, all that God has ever spoken through his prophets and through his kings and through the priests are finding their fulfillment, have found their fulfillment in Jesus. They are, Jesus is the yes. Paul essentially says the evidence is in the scriptures and he's imploring them to see, to have not just open eyes, but open ears and soft hearts. And he himself was a powerful witness, wasn't he? Because he himself was one who was blinded to that storyline, was blinded to that truth, and ultimately needed to be physically blinded on the road in order to have his eyes spiritually opened. And so he is imploring his brothers and his sisters to see Jesus throughout the Scriptures. These men who should have known their Bibles better than anyone, they certainly knew them knew their scriptures better than the Gentiles who were also there listening to Paul. They had more verses memorized than you could count. And yet they missed Jesus. The evidence is in the scriptures, but Paul says the proof is in the resurrection. We can see Jesus throughout, but the proof that he is who he claimed to be, that he is the fulfillment of all that is written, is the resurrection. See, for the Jews... Anyone hung on a tree was cursed by God. And so that became a stumbling block. Oh, this clearly could not be the Messiah. God would never curse the Messiah. 
And what Paul says is the resurrection overcomes that curse. Later he would teach, yes, Jesus became a curse for us. That's what we deserved. He took it upon himself and in himself and put to death even the greatest of curses. And so Paul is saying it's no longer a stumbling block. Jesus is the fulfillment, and we know that because of the resurrection. Because God looked down, saw the sacrifice of Jesus, and raised him up again. God accepted the sacrifice. He brought him to life. And then he connects it to David. He says, maybe the greatest leader, greatest king, the man after God's own heart, when he died, he saw corruption. He was laid in a tomb, and he remains there today. But this man, Jesus, when he died and was laying in the tomb, he was raised up again. He did not see corruption. And furthermore, he appeared to many people over many days. What Paul was saying is we're not the only witnesses. Ask around. They're still living today. A pretty powerful testimony. And the people were astonished and begged that these things might be told them again. Now we know just as has always been the case so far through Acts and will continue to be, the powerful proclamation of the truth, of the hope to all people in Jesus, to be reconciled to God, that that message will be received wonderfully by some. That will be the fertile soil that that seed falls upon. And others will respond to it as hardened soil. Will actually oppose it. And again, we see the same thing. The Jews unable to receive and to accept. And in their own jealousy, for their own pride and position, because this would bring them down to a level position. As the Puritans used to say, and even the early church fathers, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And the Jews, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they liked their high standing. They liked being better law keepers than everyone else. And this message of the gospel brought them down to the same place, in fact, to their knees before the cross. Something they were unwilling to do, to yield to their own pride and to receive their own Savior. And that's why Paul is proclaiming to the Jews first, He is your Savior. This is the Jewish, this is the Jewish religion. And we know that many today count that as offensive and foolishness just as it was when they first received the message. And Paul, being a Jew himself, was saying, I was blind and now I see. It sounded foolishness to me also, but I met Jesus. And now I see all the things that I was blind to through the Scripture. How did I miss it? How did I miss that Jesus is the fulfillment of of all that is written. So he's imploring his brothers and sisters. They reject and deny, certainly among, among the crowds that were astonished and begged to hear again, there were Jews there, but primarily it seems to be Gentiles. Those that could not enter in, could not come too close to Yahweh, the holy God, because they were not the chosen ones. They are now hearing with their ears that they are invited in. 
The gates have been broken down. The walls have been torn down. The veil has been torn. And they can receive Jesus by simply believing. It's astonishing. And so with that right response, they say, come back and preach to us again. Come back and preach the same message. I think I heard it, but I need to hear it again. May we never get tired of the gospel. Week in and week out. We need to hear it and be reminded of it, that's true. But may we long for it. I think I heard it, but, but speak it again. It's too good to be true. Yes, it is the good news. Perhaps we need to hear it for the first time. I remember with friends of mine who were coming to faith in Jesus uh, in high school and then in college, and they'd never read the scriptures before, or maybe bits and pieces. And I remember one conversation with a good friend of mine who was reading through Matthew for the first time. He'd never read any of the Gospels. And he was just astonished and amazed. This Jesus, and he'd already put faith into Jesus, but now his faith was growing, and he's astonished to hear and to read. And we got into great conversations. What did Jesus mean here? What, what, what was happening? He was so fresh. And I just remember saying, I wish I could read this for the first time. Because I began reading the scriptures from a very young age. Not to change my story, but I wish I could read with a little more intelligence for the first time the story of God's love and his pursuit fulfilled in Jesus. But I remember just that, the picture of that longing. I think he sat and he read through the entire gospels in one day just to soak it in and to hear it for the first time. And I said, I wish I could hear it for the first time. And maybe that needs to be for some of us our prayer. For them, it was new news. Maybe it needs to be new news for us today to hear the gospel again. We would say, oh yeah, I know the gospel. I know it inside and out. Do we? Maybe we need to hear it again, especially if we grew up with a relationship with Scripture like the Pharisees did. And we have perpetuated that because it's the easiest way to read the Scriptures. In many ways, it's the way I grew up under the Scriptures. My, my understanding of the Bible essentially is it was a list of rules. A number of things that I needed to do in order to be accepted by God or forgiven by God. And the more I read about those rules, the more I realized I'm not doing them. Oh, I got that one down. And then as soon as you say that, then pride emerges and you fall short all again, over again. And so therefore, if I need to fulfill all of these rules or at least enough of them, at least most of them, whatever that number happens to be, in order to be accepted and received by God and forgiven, and I know I'm not doing it, then therefore, God must be upset with me, angry with me, distant from me waiting for me to get it right. If that is the relationship you have had or have with Scripture, hear the gospel as new news. Hear it with new ears. See it with new eyes. It's what Paul was imploring his audience. It's what I would implore you. If the Bible seems like it did for the Jews, just a lot of stories of heroes Leaders, prophets, kings, 
Those that rose above the rest with greater faith, with greater courage. And therefore God saw them and blessed them and worked through them in mighty ways and we remember them. If that's the way you understand or read Scripture, you need to hear the Gospel with new news. Every one of those men and women fell short and leaves us longing for a greater king, a greater deliverer, a perfect priest, a true prophet who is Jesus. Everyone falls short. God invites all into his story. Hear the gospel with new news. Let it be for the first time, if it need be. And I'll say again, read again Paul's summary words in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through Jesus forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Everything you are trying to accomplish in the law by being good enough, right enough, fulfill enough rules, you're under bondage. You'll never be freed. It'll never be enough. But in Jesus, he has fulfilled it. And everyone who believes in his work will be counted as righteous, will be counted justified as if they had fulfilled it all. And so if you live still with a guilt that what you've done or who you are isn't enough, that God couldn't love you or wouldn't truly forgive you, you need to hear the gospel for the first time. Let it be new news. When Peter preached in Acts 3, he was preaching to some in the crowd who were the very ones who orchestrated the arrest and the false trial of Jesus, the very ones who called out to Pilate, crucify him. Peter was preaching to them in the crowd. And he said, even you are being extended grace and mercy and forgiveness by the very one whom you put to death. Come to him. Come receive his grace and mercy. Repent and turn to him and believe and you will be saved. Just as Jesus on the cross prayed for those who were mocking him and persecuting him, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Just as Paul here becomes a testimony of that grace, the very one who was putting to death the saints and made it his life mission to crush the church and persecute it, he is wonderfully saved by the grace of God. And he's imploring these brothers and sisters of his to receive that news, to receive the message. How do we do that? Through faith alone. Everyone who believes is freed. Everyone who believes is justified. Just as Peter had preached in Acts 2.21 when he was quoting the prophet Joel, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Up until that point, to call upon the name of the Lord, you had to first put your own works into place. You had to become Jewish first and then enter through the law and through the 
ceremonies, through circumcision if you were male, through the sacrifices of atonement. And even Joel had proclaimed the new covenant, which Peter is preaching. It will come to pass that everyone who simply calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved because the final sacrifice has been paid. The blood has been shed. The work is finished. Which is why John said, like the bronze serpent that was lifted up in the desert, everyone who is bitten by a snake and looks upon that serpent will be healed by faith. Not by the amount of faith, but by the object of the faith. So too, God so loved the world that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever looks upon Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross, not the amount of faith, but the object of faith, saves, justifies. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul preached this sermon nearly 2,000 years ago. So in that respect, it is not new news. But may we hear it as if it is. In that respect, it's not new news, but may we never let it get old. Hear it again. Be astonished again. It's so easy to forget, to wander, to reject it, to change it. Because our enemy would have us change it. Would lie to us to add to it. I think this is why Paul and Barnabas in their ministry that followed urged them, verse 43, urged them to continue in the grace of God. That grace is truly amazing, astounding. And we need it not just at the moment of our salvation to receive the grace of God, but we must continue in it because we are so prone to forget it, to add our own works to it. We always do this, don't we? As we seek to live out our faith, we wonder, and if any of this sounds familiar, then this is It's because the source of this lie is the same. Maybe God would love me more if I fill in the blank. Usually something to do with more holy, more obedient, something works related. Perhaps God would love me more. Perhaps God would hear my prayers more and answer them more consistently if I would only Fast, tithe, serve, whatever the blank is. Maybe I would see more of the Holy Spirit's work in my life if I would. So if any of that feels or sounds, sounds familiar, a discourse running through your mind, it's because the source of that word is the same and it's an enemy. It's our adversary who speaks lies in the place of truth. The truth is the gospel. You cannot be loved anymore. You cannot be loved any less. Jesus has fulfilled it all. Believe in him and find life and life to the full. You are justified. You are righteous. 
Paul would write back to the Galatian church, these very believers and the other churches in this region, O foolish Galatians, pretty harsh words, who has bewitched you? This is Galatians chapter 3, by the way. Who has bewitched you? Someone has lied to you. Someone has deceived you. Because before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. This is the message we preached. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? There should have been one answer to that. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh, by your works? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? I'm trying to embody my inner Paul here because I don't think he was calm as he was having, well, I don't think he was actually writing this, as he was probably pacing the room and giving discourse and it was being recorded. Verse 11 of Galatians 3. It is evident that no one is justified, there's the word, freed before God by the law, for the righteous will live by faith. We live by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So even the church who sprang up, even these these Gentiles who said, it's too good to be true, and they received it, and they're filled with the Spirit, and they're rejoicing We are adopted in, we're grafted in. They got it. They got the gospel as you have. Even they needed this reminder years later because they'd wandered from the grace of the gospel. They've added to it, they've changed it, they've put on works. It had ultimately become, if we follow the law enough, we can receive Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. This would almost split the church. Wait for just two chapters. As there was a large group saying, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and he's, he's for all if they become Jewish and then receive him. Whoops. That veil that was torn, let's put that back up, sew it together. Make sure everyone comes and the men are circumcised, they start following the law, and then, then Jesus is for you. Not the gospel. The gospel is free because of what Christ paid. It is finished. So we're in good company if we need the reminder, if we need to hear again the gospel week in and week out because we walk through this life and we hear not just lies from our own head but from almost every direction in our culture which is so loud and is speaking so strongly that you are not enough. You need to do more, work harder, be better, rise up. And if you'll do those things, maybe you can get the life that you want or make an impact in the world. Is that not from every direction? That's not the gospel. That's a lie from the enemy. Jesus is enough. He's done it all live in the freedom of his grace and mercy 
How do we respond to that gospel? Once again, we believe, we call out to him. Whoever calls out to him will be saved. Today, as we call out to him with our words, with our heart, we once again find his healing power. We once again walk in his grace. We are urged to continue in his grace. Live in freedom. Paul would then write in Galatians chapter 5, he would encourage them, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do not come back into bondage. Stand firm. Walk in freedom. We are not in bondage to sin if we have trusted in Jesus. He has broken the chains. If you walk and it feels like you are in bondage to sin or to addiction, that you cannot break it. You are right. You cannot break it. Jesus has. We walk in victory in freedom, not according to our feelings, but by faith in the one who has delivered us. Walk in victory. It's what you are urged to do knowing that it's not easy and that you are not alone. But do not succumb again to the yoke of slavery as if that is your reality. It is not. Your identity is freed, delivered, empowered, and healed. With that, we then extend the invitation of this gospel to others. That's the right response as we live it out. I love this because Paul quotes from Isaiah 42 and claims it is their commandment. He, Paul and Barnabas, they took it personally. Isaiah 42, 700 years before this point. This is verse 47 of 13. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That was written to a people. Paul is taking it personally. We are fulfilling this word right now. I've heard many, even pastors, say, oh, the Great Commission, or Acts 1.8, that you will be my witnesses in all places to the ends of the earth. Well, that was for them. That was for that first group of believers. It was for the disciples gathered around Jesus. That's not for us. I mean, it's a good thing, and if some want to do it, okay. That's not the way Paul lived. He took the word personally and seriously. We are called to be a light to the Gentiles. That's why we live as we live. That's why we are going as we are going. We must extend the gospel the whole gospel, the full gospel, the free gospel as we are going. But if we are not living in victory and in freedom, continuing in grace, no wonder we don't proclaim. What would our message be? Well, here's the gospel. It's kind of effective. It's okay news doesn't quite ring, does it? What message will we proclaim if we are not living in the whole reality of the gospel? 
We also live under that lie, another lie of the enemy. Your life is so messed up, it has been for so long, that when you finally get it right, together enough, then you have something to proclaim. Then you can lead your family. Then you can serve within the church. That's a tricky, evil form of legalism. You have been freed. You have been delivered. Jesus Christ died for you. It is enough. That's the message. Now truly, I don't have it all together. My life is in shambles. What I do have is the power of the gospel at work in my life. He's bringing joy where there should be no joy. I want more. He's bringing hope where there should be no hope. I want more. He's showing me how to love where I could never love before. I want more. We are works in process. Let the work continue to be done in and through us as we call out to him. Skip that last verse. How must, we, how must we respond? Thankfully, the Galatians, these Gentiles, they show us this response to the new news that can be ours today and I hope is every day of this coming week. They rejoice and they worship. They're filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. May that be true of us. Then as we go, we go as his ambassadors on his mission to proclaim the whole gospel, the full gospel, the free gospel, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Thank you, Jesus. I'll invite the team up to lead us in response. Thank you, Jesus. You've done it all. You've conquered sin and death. You've replaced my guilt with your grace. Help me stand firm in faith and walk in freedom. Fill us, Lord, with joy and with your Holy Spirit. Amen. As we sing, and for some of you that's easy, and for others that's a discipline. We sing praises and we sing prayers. You may be saying these words, but your heart may be praying and praising something other. That's good. That's right. We become the body and the bride of Christ. As we respond, as we come to the table, the picture of acceptance, not just the picture of Christ's body broken in the bread, blood shed in the cup, but remember the table. The night before he's crucified, he's there with his friends and he's inviting them all in. Remember who was seated at that table. Men who still didn't get it. Men who that night would fall asleep on Jesus when he asked them to stay awake and pray. And one man who in that moment would walk out the door and betray him. That's who was at the table. And he shared the bread and the cup with everyone. Oh, and prior to that, he wrapped a towel around his waist and washed each one's feet. This is the picture of the free gospel. For all who say, that sounds too good to be true, and yet it's for me. Come to the table.
as we respond. And we have a chance to give, and if you're a guest with us, we just put this little disclaimer that says this is a privilege and an opportunity to partner in God's work, and it's a response to what he's doing. That's why it's at this point of the service, because we respond to what God is doing in our life in many ways, one of them being with partnership and generosity and sacrifice. So if you're a guest with us or this isn't your home church, please let that pass or drop in a card and we'll connect with you this week. God's grace and peace to you, church. Live in it. The whole gospel, the full gospel, the free gospel. Lead us, team. Well, we've had the opportunity to look back like Paul's perspective as we entered into the story. This benefit that we have 3,500 years later to see God's amazing, redemptive plan at work. And the incredible thing is here today, he sees each one of you. He's been about this work for thousands of years, and it comes to today, and he sees you. And hopefully he has spoken to you today. He has touched you in some way. My question is, how would you respond to that? This is the heart of it. The good news, right? Hopefully you're experiencing that. Jesus has come, paid the way, restored us, brought new life. As the word is, the world around us is choking in its own smoke of broken hearts and self-centeredness, dead spiritually. Each one of us holds new life for them, right? We hold the gospel. That is new life. This greenhouse is a miraculous place. Taking the dead and bringing them to life. New life, new creations. Think about this week. How would God use you? Who needs to hear the gospel around you? Who needs new life? So as you go out today, let's go convinced and in trust and in faith of the love of the Father. Let's go out in the freedom of the grace that's been given us through Jesus. And I pray that we go out in the 